Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for just being who you are, God. I pray that right now, Lord, that you anoint my mouth, Lord, as you did with Jeremiah, and you put your words in his mouth, God. Put your words in my mouth, Lord, that I may speak your truth, God, and not my truth. Lord, I pray that you prepare my brothers and sisters to receive your word, God. Open their hearts, Lord. Let them see glories, even things that you have revealed to me, God. Just continue to work, Lord, through your word. Let them have aha moments, God, as they go through your text, Lord, God. Um, allow your word, God, to go and just reach that place, Lord, that you know needs to be touched, Lord, God. Have your way on today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're good there. So last week, as I mentioned, we celebrated the 4th of July, right? It was on that day in 1776 that we as a nation declared our independence from Britain, right? It is that day that we as a nation said we will no longer bow down to the crown. We said we will no longer bow down to the monarchy. We are now a nation of united independent states. God also says in his word, in Acts 17, 25 to 26, that God determined the times and the boundaries of our, of our habitation. So that means that God knew that he would allow us to come to this place right here in America where we stand right now. He knew that you would be here in Sacramento. He knew the times and the periods that you would be born. He determined all of that. And so me, I am thankful that God allowed me to be born, yes, here in America. I'm thankful that God has allowed me to, born, to be born in the 20th century. I'm thankful he didn't allow me to be born in the 18th century. But he allowed me to be born in the 20th century here in America. And yes, America has its problems, but guess what? I am thankful where I am at. So with many other Americans and non-Americans, I myself last week joined in the celebration of our nation as an independent nation celebrating the founding of our sovereign nation. And Oleg and Linda can attest to this. It went down last week in our little cul-de-sac here, right? It went down. I mean, you did not need to go to Cal Expo to see a professional fireworks show. You didn't need to go to any other place. My neighbors <laughs> and all the people around, oh my goodness, you've seen fireworks, the, the professional ones shooting off in the sky, just big, beautiful explosions. It went really, uh, it really went down in my little cul-de-sac here last week. It was a great celebration. But I can tell you this, even though we had a great time fellowshipping with you all and having seeing fireworks, do you know when the greatest 4th of July celebration was? Or with whom? Anybody have any idea when the greatest 4th of July ever was? And with whom? The answer is, it was for the Americans in 1776, right? It was for the Americans in 1777, uh, the ones who were actually closer to the event. They are the ones who knew what it felt like to be under Britain's reign, if you will. They, they knew what it felt like to be subjugated to another nation. It's oftentimes when you're closer to the events, you can appreciate it more and begin to celebrate it more. Let me remind you of another celebratory event. Um, anybody familiar with Juneteenth? And I say this, church, all you guys, well, some of you guys should be familiar with Juneteenth because a few years ago, when I was preaching on worship, I gave you guys the whole history of Juneteenth. And so, a recap, Juneteenth is the day, is June 19th, 
And it's the day that the slaves in Galveston, Texas, 1865, they got the news that they were no longer slaves, that they were actually free. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation had happened years prior, they didn't get the news until 1865. And so when those slaves in Galveston, Texas, received the news that they are free and no longer enslaved, you know what they did? They rejoiced. There was jubilation in the streets. And even in the following year and every year going forward after, seven, uh, after 1865, many members of the black community even now, I've grown up seeing it on Juneteenth, June 19th, there's always a celebration. There's music, there's food. Why? They're celebrating the day that the slaves realized that they were free, that they were no longer in bondage to a slave master. And so again, as our country celebrates celebrated our freedom and independence last week, I think we as a church, guess what? We have a freedom that we can also celebrate. We have an independence as well. See, we were once in bondage to another kingdom. And that kingdom is called the kingdom of darkness. But as you will see in the text, God has rescued us from the most oppressive, most ruthless kingdom known to man. That is Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. So look at our text here. I want you to see what I'm talking about. Paul is writing to the Colossians and look what he says here in verse 13 and 14. He says this, for he, talking about God, has rescued us from the domain or the government or the kingdom, the power, depending on your translation, of darkness. And what did he do? And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He rescued us from another kingdom. And the scripture says that he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you a little bit of background here. So Paul is writing this letter to the, to the Colossians, right? He's writing this letter to these Christians in Colossians. And the reason that he's writing this letter, the Colossians, is because the church has allowed some false teachers to come up in the church and to begin teaching religion. Let me say that again because some of you just said, wait, what did you just say? So the reason that Paul is writing these le this letter to the, to the Colossians is because the church there has allowed some false teachers up in the church who were propagating religion. See, these, these false teachers were teaching that salvation or peace with God or how to get to heaven, if you will, is gained through not touching physical certain things to not physically touching certain things. They were teaching that you couldn't eat or drink certain things if you wanted to be truly holy and right with God. They were teaching that heaven is gained, if you will, by celebrating certain holy days. They were teaching that um, keep, you had to keep the, the Sabbath, and they were also teaching self-abasement, meaning you needed to starve yourself, or you need to just go out and live in the wild, or you had to wear certain types of clothing, and now you're really holy. See, this is religion. It makes me think of some of the Eastern gurus, where I've watched shows where they had like a, this Eastern guru in this small little village, and, and people would love the, the guru because it's said that this guru hasn't drank water in 30 years, or he hasn't had us. Uh, he hasn't eaten food in, in 40 years or he hasn't moved from this one place in, in 
years and years and years. And so people in the community would look at him like, oh, this guy is really spiritual. No, that's, that's just religion stuff. See, these false teachers in, that, uh, that were coming up to the church and with the Colossians, they were giving these people rules or religious rules, but they were not giving them Jesus. See, they were, they were giving them something that they really don't need. See, Jesus is different from religion. Religion is man working his way to God, but Jesus is God coming to men. And so these false teachers were telling the people that they needed to keep all of these religious rules. See, they were really teaching bondage and slavery through rule keeping, and they were not giving them life and freedom, which is what Jesus came to do. And so that, that, that is the motive on why Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. He's, that's the reason he's writing this. But there's a lesson to be learned in this motive for writing this. And that is, we have to watch it ourselves because we too can be like these false teachers and unintentionally begin to teach and push religion and not Jesus. And we do this when we say things like this. Oh, you're not a Christian if you watch this Netflix show, right? Or, oh, you're not a Christian if you voted this way or you voted that way. Or, oh, you're not a Christian if you, if you drank this. Or in some real traditional churches, oh, women can't wear pants in church. And so if you wear pants in church, oh, you're, you're not a Christian. You have to wear a dress or a skirt. See, that was religion. That was just rule keepings. But no, the reason we are Christian is because we are trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ to reconcile me to God. And we believe that his blood covers us and cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness and that through faith in him, we are new creations made for good works. That's what makes us a Christian. That is what makes us a believer, not just rules and regulations. And so before Paul begins to really dig into this letter and, and, and really refute some of the false teachers of their heresy, he, he starts off this letter in Colossians in chapter 1 by reminding these Colossians of the kingdom, one, that they used to be ruled by, which we see here in verse 13. He's reminding them of the kingdom that they used to be ruled by. He, he's also reminding them of the kingdom that they are currently a part of, which you see in verse 13 and 14. And he's also showing them how they got into this kingdom. And so in celebrations of freedom and independence, we're going to talk about the same thing. These are our three points. We're going to look at the kingdom that we were once ruled by in verse 13. We're going to look at now the, the kingdom that we are now a part of, which you also see in verse 13. And we're going to see how we have become citizens of this new kingdom kingdom that we are a part of. So in writing this letter here, Paul tells these Christians here in verse 13 that before they became Christians, they were a part of a different kingdom. This kingdom he identifies as the domain of darkness or the rule of darkness. See Christians, I don't know if you know this, but guess what? Satan has a kingdom, if you did not know that. Satan has a kingdom. Guess what? Satan has real power. Guess what? Satan is a boss. And he has goons or soldiers that are ready to do his dirty work. And guess what? This kingdom is straight ruthless and savage. For example, there are people in countries and here in the U.S. that are prostituting little kids, little boys and little girls. Who do you think is behind this? Who do you think behind this? See, that is demonic. See, this is the kingdom of darkness and it's savagery. The kingdom of darkness is savage. 
Or think about corporations. There are corporations that will do all type of shady deals to bring profit to people, no matter if they're going to harm other people or other countries, but they do it because it makes them rich. See, this kingdom is straight savage. And guess what, believers? Guess what, Christians? This is the kingdom that we were all under. This is the domain that once ruled us. And guess what? None of us are exempt. And all of you know this. You know how you know? Just go back into your BC days. Go back in your mind. Remember your BC days, your before Christ days. When the kingdom of darkness and your flesh began to tag team you and had you doing some of the most ruthless and savage things to yourself and others. And if you're not familiar with what some of those things looked like, let me remind you. Let me go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm saying not chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. I want to show you these, this passage here. Paul describes the works that are representative of the kingdom of darkness. And I'm sure that some of us can see ourselves in some of these works. So let me read to you what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. He tells the Corinthians this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God? So now he's going to make a contrast between what's people in the kingdom of God do and, and what people in the kingdom of darkness do. So he's going to show you here what ultimately what people in the kingdom of darkness do. So he says this, do you not know that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's showing you those works are not from the kingdom of God. There's only two kingdoms, church. There's only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And he's showing you which works are not in the kingdom of God, which means that those works are the kingdom of darkness. But look at what he says. Look at the good news in verse 11, what he says. And such were some of you. You were this way. He says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So he says, you were under the kingdom of darkness. You used to live this way. You used to do these things. But he said, you are no longer that way. Why? Because you are washed. So right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is reminding us of some of us, at least, of our BC days, some of those savage moments in our lives when we didn't know Jesus and our flesh and the kingdom of darkness tag team us and had us doing all types of crazy things. And if that's still not causing you to go back in your mind and if that still is not triggering anything and you don't remember your savage time in, in that life, there's a person who does remember his time in that life. And that person is the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter himself. Which is why he says in verse 13, For he rescued not you from the kingdom of darkness, right? Not you from the domain of darkness, he says in verse 13. But in verse 13, he said he rescues what? Us. So when he says us, what is Paul doing? Paul is including himself in the number Paul is saying, I too was in the domain of darkness. I too was ruled by the kingdom of darkness. See, he's not just pointing the fingers at the Colossians and saying, you, you heathen Gentiles, you guys were under the kingdom of darkness. No, he is including himself in the number saying that I 
too was under the domain of darkness. Now the question you should be asking yourself, church, after looking at verse 13 where you have the holy apostle Paul saying that I too was under the domain of darkness, the, the question that you should be asking yourself is, hold on, is this the same guy, Paul, that says in Philippians 3.6 that as to the Mosaic law that he was blameless, meaning that you could find no fault in him, that he kept all the Mosaic rules? Wait, the same guy here, Paul, in Colossians 13.14 was saying that he was under the domain of darkness, but when you go to Philippians chapter 3 verse 6, he's saying that he was blameless with regards to the law of Moses, that he kept all of the rules perfectly and that you could find no fault in them? How is that the case? Isn't that contradictory, Jerome, that Paul is saying these two things? No, you, you see, it's this. On the outside, Paul did keep all the rules. Externally, Paul probably did keep all the rules. He, externally, Paul looked like a really good person. Because Paul, he was smart. The Apostle Paul was well-educated. He received his teaching from one of the most renowned Jewish scholars or rabbis. His name was Gamaliel. So on the outside, Paul, guess what? Paul kept all the rules. So he did keep all the mosaic rules probably on the outside. And not only did Paul keep all the rules and look like a really good person on the outside, Paul also had a really good reputation probably among his peers. For example, if you go to the book of Acts chapter 22 verse 4 and 5, I'll just summarize it for you. There's this angry Jewish mob and they're, they're ready to tear Paul to pieces because they, they believe that he was, um, he's breaking the law and that he was bringing Gentiles into the temple. And so they're ready to break Paul into pieces. And so Paul asks one of the Roman guards, let me speak to this angry mob, right? And so he, Paul begins to speak to this angry mob and he begins to tell them his conversion story. This is in verse 4 and 5 of uh, Acts chapter uh, 22. And he begins to tell this angry mob of Jews who want to rip him to shreds that he had a zeal for God. And he, he, he tells them how he would actually persecute other Christians and that all the elders were aware, were aware of it. So Paul had this really good reputation among his other Jewish brethren. Why? Because he was so zealous for God. Because he was going and he was persecuting all of the other Christians. So Paul had a really good reputation on the outside. But guess what? On the inside... When eyes were not looking, the darkness ruled him, guess what, just like it ruled us. And I've seen this, and here, here's the thing, I, I, I was, when I was reading this text, I was thinking about the times where I've gone out evangelizing, right? And some of you have encountered this well. I've gone out evangel evangelizing, and when I pull up to a house that's really nice, and I see a, a, a house that's really nice. They have a nice lawn. And I like my lawn, right? And, they, they, and you pull up and you see a nice car and you, and you knock on the door and somebody comes out and they look like they have it all together. And you begin to think in your mind, man, this person doesn't need God. This person is content in who they are. And that, that's oftentimes how I would feel. But here's the truth of the matter. This person is, guess what, ruled by the darkness just like everybody else. Yes, when we go and we evangelize to the poor, their sin is a little bit more visible. Their darkness is a little bit more visible sometimes. So it's, it's easily to say, I need to get the gospel to these folks. But it's the people that look like they got it all together. It's the people like Paul who seem to have a good reputation. They were smart, well-educated. It's those people we feel like they don't need the gospel. But no, Paul is saying, I was under the domain of darkness as well. So those people, even though they look good on the outside... They were ruled by the darkness, the dominion of darkness, just like everybody else. 
And some of us, we've come to Christ just like Paul. You had a pretty good background. Some of you had a pretty good background. Your life was pretty sanitary. Growing up as, as a kid, you were probably considered the good kid by some of your friends and your parents. You had a good reputation. People probably thought you had it all together. But guess what? On the inside, on the inside, you were a mess. The darkness ruled you. And then there was others of us who came to Christ like the, like the prostitute or like the tax collector or the thief. We were the ones out getting drunk and high in the bars and the clubs. We were the ones sleeping around with different people. See, some of us have radical testimonies and others have not so radical testimonies. But the thing that we have in common is, guess what? The dominion of darkness ruled us all. The darkness on the inside of our flesh and the darkness of the kingdom of darkness. Which is why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says this, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were walking according to the ways of Satan or the prince of the power of the air. And Ephesians 2 also tells us that there was a spirit at work inside of us, the spirit of disobedience. Did you know this church? Did you know that there was actually a spirit, a spirit of disobedience working inside of you? As you lived in rebellion against God, yes, you probably thought that you were doing your own thing by yourself, but no, there was also a spirit right there working in you, moving you to go and do those things that you now look back and you hate. That's called the dominion of darkness. 2 Timothy 2.25 also teaches, this about, teaches us this about Satan. He teaches us this, that Satan actually holds people captive to do his will. That's what 2 Timothy 2.25 teaches us. See, again, we thought that we were living by our own rules in our BC days. You thought you were being the captain of your own ship. But no, there was something else going and working in the background. The kingdom of darkness was there at work. And just like Eve in the garden, he was right there whispering in your mind, telling you to do it, telling you to drink it, telling you to smoke it, telling you to take it. He was right there working. And just like Peter in Matthew uh, 16, 23, where he begins to rebuke Jesus, the kingdom of darkness goes and fills Peter's mind to rebuke Jesus after Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die and be raised the third day. So does the kingdom of darkness in our times, in our BC times, will go and fill our mind with the things that are not God's truth. See, we've all had our time in the kingdom of darkness. We all were under its power. We all were under the rulership, the crown of the kingdom of darkness. None of us are exempt. Every person has had their time here in the domain of darkness. But now the rescue. But now the rescue. I love how verse 13 starts off by saying, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. I love this word rescue because rescue means that the person being rescued does not have the ability in and of themselves to save themselves. And so they therefore need rescue. And so when Paul says here in verse 13 that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, he's saying that this dominion of darkness, this power that ruled us, we did not have the ability in and of ourselves to break free of it. That's why we need it to be rescued. 
And if you really think about it, many of us, isn't it how it felt when you first met Jesus? Didn't it feel like you were being rescued? You tried everything that you could to break the chains, the, the bond that just that was on you, but, but nothing was working. And then you come and you meet Jesus and then life begins to happen. And you begin to get sight. Doesn't it, didn't it feel like you were being rescued? You did everything, right? You tried all of the man-made ways. You tried all of the, the man-made rules. You tried to do things on your own. You tried the world's education system. You tried all the different things, but it never brought you life. It never broke the bondage. It never broke the chain. And then Jesus comes in. It reminds me, as our brother mentioned, it reminds me of the woman with the issue of blood. The woman with the issue of blood who had the hemorrhage. The scripture says in the gospel, I was reading from Mark chapter 5, verse 25 to 34, but the scripture tells us that this woman had this issue of blood. And she went to all the physicians, she went to all the doctors trying to get healing but nobody could heal her. And the scripture says that she would even spend all of her money trying to get healed, but nothing was working. And that was just us. That was my testimony, trying to do everything that I can to change myself, trying to do everything I can to fix myself, trying to do everything I can to make it right, to make it better, but nothing worked. Just like the woman here, the woman with the issue of blood. You tried everything you could in your own power, but you could not break free of it. But then what happened? God in his mercy allows this woman to be in the same location as Jesus. And when she touches the hem of his gar garment, God delivers her from this issue that no man, no amount of money could fix. This woman got rescued because of Jesus. And this woman's testimony, as I think about it, it it's my testimony. Because I, I remember that day sitting in my apartment feeling so dead inside, feeling like there's no life within me. I remember telling God, I quit. I quit trying to do things on my own, everything that I'm trying to do on my own. Nothing is working. Nothing is giving me life. See, but on the outside, everybody thought I was fine because I'm going to college. I'm getting good grades, and, I, and my life looks really sanitary. But on the inside, there was darkness all inside of me. I remember telling God, like this woman with the issue of blood, I quit. I'm tired of doing things on my own. God, I just want your will. I just want your way. And what happened? God began to rescue me and he began to show me Jesus. See, nobody, no one comes to Jesus strolling in. Nobody comes to Jesus with shoulders back, pride all in place, strolling in to Jesus saying, okay, Jesus. No, nobody comes to Jesus like that. But we all come to Jesus crawling metaphorically on our knees. We, we come to Jesus as a person on fire looking to be extinguished by living water. We, we come to Jesus as broken people. We, we come to Jesus with this God-shaped void in our heart. Shout out to Pascal who gave that quote. We, we come to Jesus with this, this God-shaped void in our heart that only he can fill. We, we come to Jesus hungry and dehydrated because we've ate the world's food and we, we've drank in the world's drinking yet it doesn't satisfy yet it doesn't answer the craving so we, we come to Jesus because we are hungry and we are thirsty we come to Jesus as people needing rescue and God rescues us by bringing us to his son we come to Jesus because we needed rescue again God rescues us by bringing us to his son the rescue. 
here's the thing, when I'm reading this text about how God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, in verse 13, the question that comes to mind is why? Why did the Father, why did God rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved Son? Why did God do it? I'm looking for the motive. I'm thinking, why did he do this? It's not like God was bored and had nothing to do and said, oh, I guess I'll go rescue these heathens. No. And it's not like if God needed our praise or worship, he was perfectly happy within the community of the Trinity. So it's not like he needed our worship. So the thing when I'm reading this text is why, God, why would you come and rescue us? You didn't need, you're, you're not needy of anything. You're, you're self-sufficient and of yourself. So, so why did you come and rescue us? Why did you come deliver us from the kingdom of darkness? Well, on the one hand, you could point to his glory. That he does everything for the glory of his name by rescuing us, yes. But on the other hand, you could point to one of the most well-known verse in the Bible. The verse that still fascinates me and the verse that still rocks me to my core. The verse that even atheists know, which is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he, what, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Gives me a motive. Or you can look at Romans 5.8 which says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now God is demonstrating his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or you can look at Romans 8.32, which is a verse that I still can't believe is in the Bible. And it says this, that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with the son give us all things? The text said that God delivered up his son for us all. Here's my son, give me them. He's delivering up his son for us all. Huh, that's in the Bible? Yes, that's in the Bible. Or you can think about Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, which says that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. I guess I'm just a sucker for love, but all these texts that I'm reading saying that the motive that God is rescuing us, the, the reason that he's redeeming us and taking us out of the darkness, love. See, that is love for us. And it's also his glory. You can also preach the same issue, the same text, and you can point to God's glory. But today I'm highlighting his love. This is love. That's why. You can't get no clearer than John 3, 16 for God so loved. I don't care what theology, what denomination. You can try to do backflips and, and, and types of, uh, uh, what do they call it, gymnastics and try to interpret this text, but you can get no clearer that God so loved the world. Don't, don't try to twist that. Just love. God, we have a God who loves. Now it is true, as Pastor Brian mentioned a couple weeks ago, that Christians and preachers love to talk about the love of God more than they like to talk about the wrath of God. That is true. We like to talk about the love of God, not so much about the wrath of God. But here's the thing. No matter how much preachers talk about the love of God, Christians still don't believe it. I don't care how much we talk about the love of God, Christians still don't believe that God really loves them. 
We can talk about it all day, but the question is, do you believe it, church? Do you believe that God so loved the world? Do you believe that the reason that he rescued you from the dominion of darkness was because he loves you? Do you believe it? It don't matter. I can go every Sunday after Sunday and preach about God's love, but the question is, do you believe it? And many Christians don't believe it. It's evident in their life. They don't live as if they are loved by God. They don't live as if they are the bride of Christ. Church, the church itself is the bride of the darling of heaven. You are the bride of the darling of heaven, which is Jesus Christ. That should change how you live. You have the creator, the God of the universe loving you deeply. That should change how you live. That should change how you think. Like I said, you can preach this all day, but the question is that I can't do for you. I can preach to you, but I can't make you believe. So do you believe that the reason that God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness, as Paul is saying here, do you believe that the motive of it was love? Or one of the motives, like I said, because you can also speak to God's glory. So God has rescued us, Paul said, from the dominion of darkness. But here's the beauty, it gets even better. When God rescues, it's another thing that he does when he rescues. When God rescues, he also restores. So this is a key point. When God rescues, he also restores. Let me show you what I mean. So, after God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, you keep reading in the text, the text says that he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 13. Then in verse 14, the text says this. In whom, talking about the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This word redemption that you see here in verse 14, this word has an Old Testament context. So in the Old Testament, Leviticus 25, you want to read about redemption in, Le in the Old Testament, read Leviticus 25. So in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 25, when, when people in Israel were on hard times, they would often sell their land or they would sell themselves to others. And if they did that, they had this thing called redemption rights. We've preached on this before, but I'm just going over again for people who may be unfamiliar. So again, if you went on hard times in Israel in the Old Testament, you had land, you could sell your land. Or you can actually go and sell yourself kind of as a servant to others. But there was this thing called redemption rights. And redemption rights gave your nearest kinsmen the right to go and purchase the land that you lost and bring that land right back into the family's name. So they're restoring that land back to where it should be. And it's the same thing if you were a servant. If you were a servant and you sold yourself to be someone's servant, then your kinsmen could go and pay your redemption price to restore you back to that place that you were prior to placing yourself in slavery. So just like the land can be restored back to the family's name, he would pay this money for you if you were a servant and you would be restored back to the position you were prior to going into slavery. Now you should say, what does this all have to do with what Paul is saying here in verse 13 and 14? Well, it's this. In the beginning, this is important, very important. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, guess what? They started in the kingdom of God. They were viceroys, meaning that they were given authority to rule the earth. They started in right relationship with God. But what happened? But then sin came in. And what did sin do? Sin severed that relationship with God and got them booted out of the kingdom and out of Eden, right? But then Jesus, 
our nearest kin, which gives explanation to why the Son of God had to take on human flesh. He comes, he lives a holy life, and he goes to the cross to pay our redemption price and to remove our sin and to restore us back, what? Into that former position in the kingdom of God that we once had in Adam, of Eve, in Adam and Eve. So do you see how the redemption, without the redemption, there is really no transfer into the kingdom of God. When Jesus went to the cross and removed that sin, now he's making a way so that you can be restored back into that right relationship, back into the kingdom of God position that we were in the beginning with Adam and Eve. So when God rescues, he redeems through his son, and then we are restored back into the kingdom of God, our right relationship with God. That's why this verse is so powerful. Church, as a believer, you have now been restored back into the kingdom of God. You are now in right relationship with God. You are now true children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. This darkness no longer has dominion over you, church. Satan no longer has dominion over you, church. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Fear no longer has dominion over you. You are now in the kingdom of God. Addiction no longer has rule over you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are now a citizen of God. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. So just like last week as a country, we celebrated the 4th of July, an event that happened year or hundreds of years ago. We celebrate America's independence. Guess what? When we as the church gather as saints, guess what? We should also be celebrating our freedom and independence. We should also be celebrating our freedom from the domain of darkness because now we have been placed by the Father in the kingdom of his beloved Son. See, we are in the kingdom of God. And guess what? In the kingdom, we don't have presidents in the kingdom of God. We have a king. And we have a king who is like no other. We have a king who leaves the 99 for the one, Matthew chapter 18, verse 12 to 14. We have a king that allows us to share in his inheritance, Romans 8, 17. We have a king that has already demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We have a king with all power and authority in his hand, Matthew 28, 18. We have a king that not only controls our economy, but also controls the weather and also has life and death in his hand. That is the king that we have. And that is the king that we serve. This is the kingdom that we have been transferred in. And for that, we should rejoice. We should celebrate and rejoice like they celebrated on the 4th of July. We should celebrate and rejoice as the slaves on Juneteenth when they realized that they were free. We should celebrate and rejoice that we are no longer in bondage. The kingdom of darkness no longer has its dominion over you. And so if the world can celebrate wars and being free, oh, we can celebrate being in the kingdom of darkness. Oh, we can celebrate that Satan no longer has his grip on us, but that now we have power over the enemy. We can celebrate that. And that is what the church should do as we gather together. We remember our Independence Day. See, each of you have your own Independence Day. Each of you have your own moments when you realize, whoa, I am now in the kingdom of God. Whoa, I am a new person. Whoa, I am a new creation. Some of you, your Independence Day came when you were at church and you heard the sermon. Some of you, your Independence Day came when you were at home listening to a sermon. Some of you, your Independence Day came as you had a needle in your arm. Some of you, your Independence Day came when you were laying on the side of a bed of a stranger that you just, you know what, with. See, I don't know how your Independence Day came. 
But your Independence Day came where you begin to see Jesus, where the Father rescued you and opened your eyes to see Jesus for who he is and all of his beauty. And he gave you the faith to believe that Jesus Christ has really redeemed me and reconciled me to God. That was your Independence Day. So let's celebrate these things, church. When we get together, let's bring out the hot dogs and the fireworks and let's celebrate the victory of Jesus. Because we're no longer in bondage. We're in the kingdom of God. God has rescued you. Imagine this, if God didn't rescue you, I can speak for myself, if God didn't rescue me, I know I wouldn't have the wife that I have now. If God didn't rescue me, I know I wouldn't have the kids that I have now. If God didn't rescue some of you, you wouldn't have the wife or the husband that you have now. But God rescued you. And he changed your life and changed different things in your life. And so you praise him for it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, Lord, for seeing us in our misery, for seeing us in the darkness, Father. And you, by your own sovereignty, going and taking us out of the kingdom of darkness, rescuing us, God, as we were dead, lying at the bottom of the ocean, Lord, and gave us life and brought us into the kingdom of your dear son. Thank you, Lord, for giving us freedom. Thank you for removing the grip and the chains that held us back, Lord. Oh, God, we now have life in you, and we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for our redemption paying our redemption price, Jesus, and restoring us to our position as kingdom citizens, children of the Most High God. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for what you've done. We remember you on today. We worship you, Lord God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.